0: this morning, first Peter chapter one. And my text is going to be verse 10, 11, and twelve, but I want to back up at verse number eight. I've already preached these verses, we'll not preach them again, but just a great verse, first Peter one and verse number eight, whom having not seen ye love, and whom, though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time. The Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, and it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And to whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. I want to preach for a little bit on a salvation everybody is talking about. The greatest thing That has ever happened to any person is the day that they got saved. No matter how wonderful or how terrible your life was before that day, the greatest day for you was the day when you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. That day changed everything, it erased your past, it delivered you from sin. It made possible fellowship with God. It reserved you a place in heaven. It gave you eternal life. It is greater than the day you got married. It is greater than the day you held your first child. As hard as this is to imagine, it's greater than the day you held your first grandchild. It's greater than winning the lottery. It is greater than anything that you can imagine. Now, that day for me was September the 27th, 1976. Now here's what's so crazy about it. I don't remember anything that happened the day before. And I don't remember anything that happened the day after. But I do remember that day. I don't remember anything that happened that morning. I don't remember anything that happened that afternoon. But I very clearly remember what happened that night. Because that was the night, that was the night that my mom and dad knelt beside my bed as a seven year old boy and led me through what we would call the sinner's prayer. And I know that the sinner's prayer doesn't save anybody, but that's how I asked the Lord to save me. I don't remember what I said, I don't remember what I said after. I don't remember a whole lot about what I did that night, but I remember everything. He did that. Message. As a teenager growing up in a preacher's home and not being saved out of a life of deep sin and not having that unshackled testimony, the devil used that in my teen years to talk me and to cause me to doubt my salvation. He, he tried to tell me that I was holding on to a false profession of faith that I, I didn't understand. I didn't say the words right, and so for many years I tried to erase that day out of my mind. I tried to forget it, but it seems like the Holy Spirit wouldn't let me forget it. Every time that I would get on my knees before God and say, Lord, please save me again, it seems like He was saying, I've already done that. I tell you that there is nothing greater than being saved. Now, when we come to church and we sing about being saved, and they sing about Jesus' name, and we preach it, it's really good to be saved when we come to church. Because church ought to stir us up, and ought to remind us of how great that he is, and, and we ought to rejoice this morning in things that we've already rejoiced in. How no boring would this be if this was a Kingdom Hall convention? Well, if this was a conference of Mormons that didn't even believe in heaven, wouldn't that be fun? Huh? But well, can you imagine if we were all Armenians and we were trying to work our way to heaven this morning? Wouldn't that be bad? Or if we were all and we thought that we were elected, but the guy sitting next to you was elected to damnation. That'd be bad too, wouldn't it? And aren't you glad that that's not the case? It's good to be saved. It's good to know that you are saved. And well, it's good to be in your salvation. But being saved is especially good when troubles hit. Because trials and tribulations have a way of taking our eyes off of what we have In Christ, we either forget, or we doubt, or we just don't feel like thinking about the blessings of God when we're going through so much buffeting. Troubles have a way of consuming us. They demand all of our time, and all of our energy, and all of our thoughts to think about the trouble, and that's never happened. We can't ignore the circumstances of life, but we must remember that the circumstances of life are not the only reality of our life. There is something inside of us that, that nothing outside of us can ever take away. And in our darkest night, in our deepest valley, it's, it's good thing. to be able to stand and say, "God, I'm still your child, and I'm still in your care. And no matter what happens in this life, I am still saved. You see, we sing it and we preach it and we shout it and we are happy about it because it is real and it is precious. But when you go through the fire, it gains a new perspective. You, you get a better understanding. Tonight, the youth cry will sing, and I don't know what they'll sing, but they'll sing something about the Lord and being saved, and that's wonderful. And, and don't, don't, don't misread what I'm going to say. But when a teenager who has never known trouble sings about the strength of the Lord, And the proficiency of grace, from the Lord carrying you and sheltering you from the storm, that's a blessing. And they mean that. And please please don't misunderstand. But after you walk with God for 50 years, and you've had friends forsake you, and you've had church members betray you, when your body is tired and worn, and you've been to the funeral home too many times to say goodbye to a loved one, and when you've been to the doctor and all that he can say is we're going to try to contain it, when you have been through the storm, when it seems like it seems it's more to you to think about him being the shelter in the storm, when you've been through the fire, that's when you're through the presence. Of the fourth man, when you're walking through the dark valley of the shadow of death, that's when the shepherd is really real to you. It's good to be saved any day of the week, but it's really good to be saved on the darkest day. Peter's writing to suffering saints. Suffering is the thing we've seen it over and over. He's writing to Christians who are living in the crucible of trouble and trials and suffering. They're living under the thumb of an evil pirate named Nero. And what we have said is that their suffering is set in the context of their salvation. Most Christians look at their salvation through the view of what's going on in their life. Really, we ought to look at what's going on in life through the view of our salvation. So Peter really spends as much time talking about salvation in the book as much as he does their suffering. We don't have time to review the verses, but just cast your eyes back to verse number 2. And we sit several weeks on this verse, but it talks about how that your salvation is the work of the Trinity. In verse number 3, it's a lively hope. In verse number 4, it includes a resurrection in heaven. In verse number 6 and 7, he finally brings up the subject of suffering and trial. But in verse 9, 10, 11, and 12, he's right back on the talking about being saved again. In verse 13 through 17, he lays out some practical exhortations. But in verse 18 and 19, he's back on being redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Verse 23, being born Isn't it going to be born again? This thing, you, just keeps coming back to so coming back to coming back to it. We want to talk about our troubles all the time. We just keep thinking about salvation. And here's why it's important. If there's anything that's going to comfort you, if there's anything that's going to strengthen you, If there's anything that's going to carry you in the days that we've been through and the days ahead, it is to think about what Christ has done for us and what Christ has done in us. I was preaching the other night. In fact, I was preaching this the other night in North Carolina at camp meeting, and I was studying it, so I preached it. And and do you realize, do you realize, if you go back to March of last year when the pandemic first hit and we started going through all of the craziness, do you realize? That every fall that I sang before the pandemic, I'm still singing. We have not had to go to the hymnal and say, well, it's COVID and Biden and Kamala and all the rest of it. I guess we can't sing those songs anymore. Well, I guess that took a lot of the time and the thing that but I'm telling you, we've not had to take any songs out of our hymnal because we're not putting up. We have had to do that. This past year and a half may have changed a lot of things, but it hasn't taken one song out of our repertoire. I was things that I think before, I'm still singing things and Faithfulness before, I'm still singing it. I was singing Jesus' Faith before, I'm still singing it. I was singing God Leaves Us Alone before, and I'm still singing it. Every song I sang before, I'm still singing. Every truth that I preached before, I'm still preaching. Every word that I had in my heart before, I still have. And I tell you that there is nothing that will help you, know, that will fear you more, that will cheer you up more, that will carry you more, just to think about the good things of God the greatest thing that you can do for your mental health is to turn off the news. And social media, get back in the Bible. When you turn on the news, it's all bad. But when you open the Bible, it's all good. So Peter's talking about suffering. He talks more about the salvation. But I want you to see something in our text in verse 10, 11, and 12 that Peter does something that I don't find anywhere else in the Scripture. He wants these saints to be reminded of how great salvation is. So he doesn't talk about what salvation is done. He doesn't talk about redemption and, 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 and all of that. That's not his theme right here. But what he does is he wants them to know that nothing Nero does can take away what's in their heart. But he's going to approach the same theme of salvation from the view of somebody else. He tells them how great their salvation is by telling them what others think about it. He's going to call to witness three testimonies. This is what they say about your salvation. Someone else has looked at your salvation and this is their response. It's wonderful to you, but it was wonderful to somebody else. This is what somebody else says about it. Watch it. Look at verse number 10. Salvation. It is number one. It is the theme of the prophet's prediction. Look at verse 10. Of which salvation but the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Now, you know who the prophets are, Old Testament prophets. Everybody from Moses to Malachi, spokesman for God in the Old Testament. And we are thankful this morning for the prophet's contributions. We go back and we read the prophecies of those Old Testament prophets that they made of the Messiah. There are witnesses to us that Jesus of the New Testament is the Christ. He is the promised one. And if all that we had was just the Gospels, if we didn't have all those copies, if all that we had was the Gospels, that would be enough to believe. But we need to read the Gospels and then go back to the Old Testament and pull. Those predictions and those clouds and those shadows include the opposition. it, it weaves a beautiful prophecy. Somebody has said that there's over 300 prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament. I haven't counted it, but I know there's a lot. Virgin born, Isaiah 7 and 14. Born in Bethlehem, Mark 5 and verse 2. Of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49 and verse 10. Betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41 and verse 9. Um, uh, Pierce Thai, Zechariah 12 and verse number 10, sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11 and verse 12. And it's true, it is really thrilling to read the Old Testament and know that you're reading about Him. In like, fact, like Jesus Himself said the beginning of Moses and the prophets, He quoted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning Himself. So we're thankful for the prophets' contribution, but we are told about the prophets' confusion. You see, the prophets didn't understand everything that they wrote about. You and I, you and I, can take all the prophecies written by the prophets over thousands of years of history, and it's like a jigsaw puzzle that we put together. When you can't put a jigsaw puzzle together, you need two things. You've got to have all of the pieces. You ever put a puzzle together and there's two pieces missing? You'll recover what the it prophets can complete, but then you need a picture. You need a picture of this is what it's going to look like. See, we have the picture, we have Christ, and we have all of the pieces, so we can put that all together. But those Old Testament prophets, they didn't have the picture, and they didn't have all the pieces, so they couldn't put it together. Moses had a few pieces, but he didn't have the pieces David had. And David had a few pieces, but he didn't have what Daniel had. And Daniel had some pieces, but he didn't have what Zachariah had. And not only did they not have all the pieces, they didn't know that there were some pieces that they were missing. So they said that it was incomplete. That is why when Jesus taught his disciples about his own suffering and his own glory, he didn't know from just one passage of Scripture. He took them to Moses, and he took them to David, and he took them to Isaiah, because that's the only way that you see the complete picture. Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is writing to the Romans and he's talking about a salvation for the Jews and the Gentiles. And in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he quotes from 24 different Old Testament passages because you've got to have all of those to put the picture together. So those Old Testament prophets, when they wrote, they didn't understand everything that they wrote. Now let me show it to you. Hold your finger right here, and go to Daniel chapter twelve. I'll show you one example of it. Daniel chapter number twelve, and I want you to look at verse number one. Daniel twelve and verse number one. At that time, now Michael stand up. Date Daniel's writing this. The great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. There's to be a time kind of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even at that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered. Every one that should be found written in the book. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, the everlasting life, and some the shame and everlasting contempt. They that be wise shall so shine as the brightness of the planet. They that turn many their righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Now, you read that if you study Bible prophecy. If you read the book of Revelation, you probably said, well, I believe I can identify that. I believe I know that that's going to happen. But did you know that when Daniel wrote that, he didn't understand it? It's all come up. Look at verse number four. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and spill the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and knowledge shall be increased. Daniel, close the book. Still the words. You're not going to understand. Nobody's going to understand until the end. Look, at you went down in verse number 8, Daniel said, I heard, but I understood not. Then said, I owe my Lord. What should be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. It is an amazing thing, ladies and gentlemen, that when I read Daniel, I understand more about it than Daniel did. I understand more about the prophecy than when he wrote it. There are mysteries in the Old Testament that are no longer mysteries in the New Testament, and these prophets are commissioned by the Holy Ghost to write things that they did not understand. Let me show you something they didn't understand. Come back to our text. Dr. to 1 Peter 1, look again at verse number 11, and I want you to look at the last statement. When it testified beforehand, watch this. The they things of Christ and the glory that should follow. They spoke of both sufferings and glory, but they couldn't put it together. Isaiah spoke of something, Isaiah 53. He spoke of the way around the today, Isaiah chapter number 6, but he couldn't put them both together. He didn't know that there was 2,000 years between the two years. It was as if they were looking out over time, and they saw one mountain peak, and that's the first coming. And they looked out and they saw another mountain peak and that's the second coming. But they didn't see the valley of the church age in between. Sometimes they were flit, perplexed. How does the suffering and the glory of one person? What is the sequence of the suffering and the glory? How do they intertwine when the Messiah comes? They're writing not understand it. But watch this in verse 12. I love this. And the evil was revealed. Now here's something that I'm going to understand. That not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things. They didn't understand it, but they figured somebody else would one day. I'm not sure what this means, but the Lord must want somebody else to read this down the road. to like said, I'm not too sure about this, but it must be for somebody else. David said, I'm not sure what to make of this, but it must be for somebody else. Then must have somebody else in mind that he wants to call this to. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, that that someone else is us. Oh, they had an immediate ministry to those in their day. They preached, and there was application, and there was a message. But there was a deeper meaning. There was a deeper understanding. When deep down inside, they said that there's no truth in somebody else supposed to be benefiting from this ha, ha, ha. Do you know what it was that they didn't understand? That they wanted to understand? Well, verse ten of which salvation. The prophets had inquired and searched diligently, who so prophesied of the, the grace that should come unto you. Now, 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 hold on, don't, don't write me off. You stay with me. Does verse number 10 not suggest to you that their salvation was different than your salvation? I don't write me off of a heretic, but those Old Testament saints did not receive the same salvation you received. They were not saved in the same manner that you and I are saved. I'm not talking about work salvation in the Old Testament, but I'm going to tell you that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And that Old Testament thing was not saved in the sense that you are saved, and they felt that there's something more. They felt that there was a grace that's going to come to you that they didn't know anything about, and they wanted to know more about it. If they had the exact same thing that you have, then why would they be so inclusive about it? Notice verse 10 also of which salvation of the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. They're studying each other's writings. The later prophets had the earlier prophets. and maybe they would compare notes. Maybe when they studied, they said, have you read this? Did you see what Moses wrote? What a wonderful salvation. The Lord is preparing for these people. When you believe that even Gentiles are going to get saved, what a grace. What a kindness. That God would prepare with us nothing salvation for these people. And by the way, if they were excited oh, about it, don't you think they might be excited about it too? And if they're in Christ and such diligently, they want very... to know more about it. Don't you think it's good enough if they're in Christ and such diligently, they want to really... you know more about it as well? And notice in verse 10 as well, he said, "...who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you." They were fascinated that God had promised a salvation by grace that would embrace the world. Now, some people make a mistake to think that the Old Testament is all law and no grace, and the New Testament is all grace. I'm going to tell you, there was grace in the Old Testament too. And any person who ever steps out in glory short will get there because of the grace of God. God didn't just start being gracious in the Gospels. No, He was gracious in the Old Testament too. Some of the grandest statements in the Bible on the grace of God are found in the Old Testament. And the prophets had no question that God was gracious, but they sensed that there is a greater grace that is to come that they have not seen yet. They sensed there is something more, there is something bigger, there is something greater that they had never known before, and they wanted to know. Daniel and Isaiah didn't know what it was to have their sins washed away in the blood of Christ. They didn't know what it was to have the indwelling Spirit and eternal life and to be adopted into the family of God. But they read those other prophets and they tried to put it all together. They didn't know how wonderful it would be, but they knew something wonderful and something great was coming. Here's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying that your salvation is so wonderful that the prophets were preoccupied with studying it that you ought to be thrilled because that's the kind of salvation that you want. We take it for granted. They didn't take it for granted. It's commonplace to us. It was not commonplace to them. It is so wonderful that the prophets in the Old Testament couldn't stop talking about it. I'll show you the second thing. Not only is it the theme of the prophet's prediction, but it is the theme of the minister's message. Look verse number 12, on whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but in the earth they did minister the things, watch this, which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. The prophets are long gone. They are died in things, but with an incomplete message. And how could it be complete when Jesus had not yet come and died and was buried and rose again? They could preach a sign of the cross, but they couldn't preach the cross. They could preach parts and symbols, but they weren't sure of the substance. But then the Lord Jesus came, and He chose twelve, and He showed them Himself. And for three years He taught them the Scripture, and He's the one that wrote it, so who better to teach it to them? with the writings of the prophets and the teaching of Jesus, they finally have the complete picture, the grace that should come, to come, and now they begin to span the globe preaching the gospel of the grace of God, what the prophets predicted, the apostles now proclaim in fullness and boldness, and preaching is nothing less than declaring what God has already seen. And you can read the early church of Acts and you can see how that gospel exploded across the Middle East and across Europe. And by the way, it wasn't a self-help talk that saw thousands saved. It was the simple message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their, their preaching and our preaching ought to be saturated with the gospel. We all preach a gospel message, how to be saved every time that we preach. But you ought to be able to take a test anywhere and run the cow Calvary. And our preaching ought to be Christ-centered, and it ought to be gospel-saturated, because anything else is good advice, but it's not the good news of the gospel. But watch this, watch this, watch this. Which are now reported unto you... By them that the gospel unto you. Those Old Testament apostles couldn't stop talking about it. But these New Testament apostles couldn't stop talking about it now. And did you know that there are still preachers 2,000 years later that are still talking about it? How many of you remember the preacher or the person who preached the gospel to you when you got saved? How many of you remember that? Somebody preached it to you. You've heard that story a thousand times. But if we to get up this morning and just preach that simple story, somebody would get heaven. You wouldn't shout. We're not a shouting church, but somebody might want to shout. You'll get excited as if you had heard it the first time. Thank God for preachers who are still preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thought about this field tonight, and I loved it. Today to, to, to this church, all the little kids back like to their Masters Club, they all get together and they and they talk, and and they're going to talk about some video game or some toy or, or whatever it is. But you know, they will eventually grow to a point where they don't talk about their toys anymore. Teenagers, teenagers will get together and, and they talk about whatever teenagers talk about: girls or boys or a ball team or going out, what, whatever it is. I don't know. But you know, there will come a time when they will no longer want to talk about those things anymore. <laughs> most subjects are trendy. They're, they're dated. And they're, they're relevant at one stage of life, but you get to another stage in life and they're no longer relevant. Whatever Hollywood starlet is hot today will not be tomorrow. Whatever movie they're talking about today, they won't be talking about tomorrow. Whatever's fashionable today is going to be out of fashion next week, right? It's trendy, it's dated, whatever. But there is something that we can talk about that never gets old. It's not trendy. It's not a fact. It doesn't get dated. You can talk about it when you're young, you'll talk about it when you're old. You can talk about it when you're having a good day. You'll talk about it when you're having a bad day. And don't you love it when a preacher gets up and says, take your Bible and turn to John three sixteen. You ought not say, "Oh no, I've done I heard six sermons on John." No, we're all good men. They're gonna be good. Going to be John three, John three, sixteen. It's always good. Bring it on. We have a salvation that is so wonderful that it's the greatest thing of the preacher. How many sermons have I heard on the grace of God? But just let me hear one more. How many songs have I heard about Jesus rescuing me? Just let me hear one more. How many times has a sister stood up sobbing and crying and trying to tell about the goodness of God? Just let me hear it one more time prophets of the Old Testament peered into it and they tried to understand it and, and they couldn't but they kept talking about it. And apostles took the life of Christ and His death, burial and resurrection and they told the world and somebody took a Bible and they told you what Jesus has done for you. And we support missionaries and we send them around the globe not to spread Western culture in the way of an American life but just to go tell somebody about Jesus Christ. It is a salvation that is for one of us that everybody's talking about. It is the theme of the prophet's prediction. It is the theme of the minister's message. But I want you to look at the last phrase of verse 12. It is the theme of the angel's admiration. Look at the last statement. Which things the angels desire to look into. <laughs> you know, if I was announced this morning that I'm preaching on the angel word, everybody be interested. We are interested in the angelic realm. We're fascinated with the spiritual world. We, we wish that we knew more. We study angels. We would like to enter into the realm and understand more about them. Peter said, "No, that's wrong." He said, "Actually, angels want to know more about you." The Bible, the the, the I wish you wanted to hear this. The, the Bible, the Bible never encourages us to get a glimpse into their world. Instead, they want a glimpse into our world. <laughs> we know that angels are created beings sometime before the creation of the world. Angels had a front row seat around the throne of God since time began. They were there at the creation because Job said to the morning stars and the sons of God that they sang together and they rejoiced, they shouted for joy. Angels were there when God called those people out of Egypt as His people and brought them across the Red Sea and planted them into Canaan. When angels were there for every great epic of Old Testament the history as God cared for His people. And angels were there when the second person of the Trinity stepped off the throne, instead of taking a trip to a planet called Earth to rescue people that are in the clutches of Lucifer. And angels watched as the one that had worshipped since the creation laid aside his robes of glory, robed himself in a body of flesh, and came to Earth, as a womb. the Virgin woman. And angels were there to watch as that child, which everybody thought was a child, grew up, but they knew it was the Son of God, and they watched him grow into man. And angels were there as he was baptized and entered into his ministry. And angels followed him all the way through his ministry, all the way to the cross, ready to rescue to him if he would just ask. Angels were there when they laid his body in the grave, and angels were there three days later when the grave burst open and he came out before his death and the grave. And angels were privy to the plan of God. They, they knew the Son of God did this for sinners, and the Bible says that they desire to look into one commentator said the idea is, is is to look into the idea is that is to stand on tiptoe like you're standing at the back of the crowd and you're trying to see the parade watching and so you stand on tiptoe to try to see over but and one commentator said no so it's wrong idea he said the idea is stooping down to to get a closer look like like Peter and John peering into the tomb to see this I think it's both. I I think that when He came, that they're standing on tiptoe looking over the banisters of heaven, watching as the darling Lamb of God lays His life down for the sins of mankind. I believe they bow down and marvel at the unfolding plan of salvation. And do you know what they would like to know? Do you know there's nothing you can preach they've not heard? Angels heard everything. There's not a text I can preach that would be new to them. There's not a doctrine I could expound that an angel sitting here wouldn't already know. Do you know what they'd like to know? They'd like to know what it's like to be saved. There's no so saved angels. is not for them. He didn't die for fallen angels. He died for fallen men and women. Do you know what they'd like to live? I wonder what it's like to be saved. I wonder what that feels like to have your sins. Again. They've never experienced new life. They've never experienced a new birth. They know what it is to be redeemed. Everything that we experienced experiencing by Jesus, the angels stand on the outside and say, This must be wonderful. They're really happy, but I don't know what that's like. <laughs> the preacher preaches a simple gospel message. He gives the invitation. If somebody's sitting in the auditorium that's not saved. And the Holy Spirit begins to convict that person's heart and says, "You need to be saved." I don't know if it's like this, but I wonder. I just wonder. I wonder if there's not a angel standing nearby. Just, it. God, just, just, oh, just take a step. Take a step. Oh, it, it, it's going to be so wonderful critique is an invitation. Somebody walks the aisle. get a soul winner take a Bible. They take them to the Romans Room really, real quickly. They're convinced that's better is to get ready to pray. I don't know if it's like this. I don't know. I, this is sanctified imagination. It's not in the Bible. But I wonder if there's not an angel just turned about and said, oh, okay. It's happening again. Did, did you see that? do you wish you knew what that felt like? Do you know the night that you got saved? It didn't make news on earth, but it made news in heaven. They might not have shouted down here; they shouted up there. (laughs) If a sinner was to walk the aisle this morning and get saved, we would cry, and we would rejoice, and we'd hug their neck. That's what they do in heaven. See, you got any Bible for that? I do have Bible for that. Yeah, Luke fifteen. I say to you that likewise, joy should be in heaven over one sinner that repented? Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repented. Your salvation is so wonderful that angels can stop talking about it. Peter's wagon to suffering saints. are living in dark days and hopeless times. They've been made the scapegoats of the great fire of Rome, the offscouring of society. They've been betrayed, falsely accused, persecuted, and been chased out of their homes. The world is getting dark and dark and Satan is everything in his arsenal against them. And Peter says, that for everything wrong in this world, get your eyes back on him." They've taken everything away from you that they can, but they cannot take your salvation away. In the past year and a half, we've come through the darkest days as a nation that I remember in my lifetime. I don't believe that we'll ever live in a pre-COVID world. We live in a post-Constitution and a post-Christian America. But I still have Jesus. I'm still singing the same songs. I'm still preaching the same truth. I'm still rejoicing with the same joy. He has saved me with a salvation that is so wonderful that everybody's talking about. They were talking about it in the Old Testament. They were talking about it in the first century. Preachers are still talking about it. They're talking about it in heaven. And maybe, maybe you and I should talk about it more too. Don't don't tell me who's playing who. I don't care. Just tell me what Jesus is doing. Or tell me what tell me what the Democrats and the Republicans are up to. I don't care. Just tell me what Jesus is up to in your life. Don't tell me what you saw on Facebook or heard on CNN or Fox. I, I don't care. Just tell me what you heard in the prayer closet. I'm going to tell you, it's great to be saved when you come to church. The trio sings and the choir sings and, and it's easy to say and man, when other people around you say it. And while we come in here and we get pumped up and we get excited, that's good, but I'm going to tell you something. When you go through the trial, when you go through the fire, that's when that salvation will mean so much more to you. It's great to be saved. You need to have life. But it's really great on the darkest days.